0: Father, now may the words of my mouth, the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. And being rooted and grounded in love by the power of your Spirit, would you give us strength to comprehend what is the length and breadth and height and depth of your love for us in Christ Jesus, now and forevermore. So in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, amen. It is always an honor for me to be back here at Heritage Bible Church. I was sent out with a group of people in 2005, and we've been in Malden, South Carolina ever since, um, I always feel like I'm, I'm coming back to, in a sense, my parents' home, to whom I owe so much. Um, it is—I uh, don't know how to describe it. I'm always overwhelmed when I come back. I owe so much to the faithful brothers and sisters here, past and present. And this morning, I'm glad that Trent and I, after a long week of of getting critiqued uh, at Simeon Trust, we swap pulpits, and now he's preaching. And I'm glad that our congregation this morning at Emmanuel Bible Church can hear Trent, and I hope that you're glad you can hear me this morning a little bit, too. I'm glad for Trent's friendship and thankful for him and what you all are doing here. You had pastors here this past week all the way, as far away as, um, as Texas, even one of your gospel partners, the Bixbys, were here taking part in that Simeon Trust workshop, as you continue to do for others what you have done to me, committing things to faithful men that they might preach the word and plant churches and be faithful to the gospel. So, Heritage Bible Church, I just want to say thank you. I want to say thank you, too, to the Moors uh, who invited us to lunch. I told my sister, you all didn't invite me to lunch, but the Moors invited me to lunch. My sister's here, she's been here for a long time, I think she's in the back. So she, I I wouldn't say, please call her Holly, too. That's her real name, (laughs) call her Holly. I'm not sure if he said it, but many claim that he wrote it. The transcendental poet Ralph Waldo Emerson once wrote, every sunset brings the promise of a new dawn. Too saccharine a sentiment, perhaps? I don't think so. I find it a lovely turn of phrase that every sunset brings the promise of a new dawn. Among other things, Emerson's words show us uh, that a defiant promise that even as darkness descends, a new day is on the way. If the sunset shares the the promise, the sign of a promise made, then maybe we can say the sunrise shares the promise of a sign of a promise kept. Promises made and promises kept. That's how Once somebody describes the overall story of the Bible, so we could call part one of the Christian Bible promises made, and we could call part two of the Christian Bible promises kept. That's the story of the Bible in two two phrases, promises made and promises kept. And like the colored beauty of a sunset and a sunrise, the Bible records the beauty of a promise. Promises made and promises kept. Well, when we come to our passage today, we arrive at one of the most staggering promises in all of the Bible. It's the the, 2 Samuel 7 shows us the beauty of an undeserved promise. Would you please locate 2 Samuel 7? It's in the first half of the Christian Bible, or uh, there's a pew Bible in front of you, and I don't know what page it is, but or you can listen because I will read the text in a moment. Friends, if you're here this morning as you're trying to locate 2 Samuel 7 and you're not a believer in Christ, please know that churches like this meet every Sunday to work through a passage in the Bible. Now, I know that sometimes Christians are critiqued for people who cite the Bible all the time. I just invite you, friend, to think about what your Bible is. What I mean is that whether you're secular or religious or you're in that growing demographic category of N-O-N-E-S, of nuns, and you're indifferent, we all turn to something for our authoritative source, a Bible, you might call it, from which we live our lives. Now, your Bible might be your desires, it might be your intellect or your ability to work hard. Your Bible just might be you. Well, this morning as followers of Christ, we're being open and upfront with our Bible this morning. So I'd invite you to be open and upfront with whatever your Bible is this morning. We have a Bible. What's yours? That would be a good discussion to have respectfully with a Christian friend. What's your Bible? Well, listen to the Christian Bible this morning and see where it might challenge you and where you surprisingly might actually agree with parts of it. Well, we're in 2 Samuel 7 this morning, and here we have an undeserving promise made to an undeserving man that's going to change an undeserving world. It's God who makes a promise to a man named David that he would one day keep to the son of David at the cross. So here in this chapter, what we're going for, I want us to see God making an undeserved promise to an undeserved man named David that ends up changing an undeserving world. Behold the beauty of a promise. And as we begin, I want you to get an image in your mind. Because the chapters in 2 Samuel 7 and all around it have many streams flowing into it and then out from it. All the previous high points in the Bible story flow into these chapters and then out and on all the way to the shores of eternity. So picture 2 Samuel 7 like Niagara Falls that sits between two countries of Revelation. Now Niagara Falls is not the tallest waterfall in the world. What makes it so special is the speed of the water cascading over the top. Every second, 3,000 tons of water surge over the top, racing at 68 miles an hour. You ever stand in the surf at the beach and get humiliated by a single wave? Sand in your shorts, salt water up the old schnoz, your body slammed, somersaulted by a single wave. The wave at the ocean is a slow, dripping faucet compared to Niagara Falls. Imagine 3,000 tons of water hitting you at the same time, moving 70 miles an hour. But Niagara Falls doesn't create the water. It just propels it, cascades it on. So where does all of that water come from? Four of the five Great Lakes feed into Niagara Falls. And if you spread out all the water in the Great Lakes, that water would cover all of North America in three and a half feet of water. That's how much water flows into that concentrated point. And that volume of water, it flows from Lake Superior... It picks up speed flowing to Lake Michigan, which sends it along to Lake Huron, where it surges to Lake Erie, where it finally reaches Niagara Falls at 70 miles an hour, 3,000 tons a second. But once the water hits the bottom, it isn't done. The water shooting over Niagara empties into the last great lake, Lake Ontario, and from that lake it forms the St. Lawrence River. Where it flows northward past Montreal and through Quebec City until it flows into the yawning Atlantic. And when it hits the Atlantic, it catches the Gulf Stream and the Atlantic Drift, whose currents, we could say, carry the waters of Niagara Falls around the world. What a sight that is. But what's the point? Bro, is this National Geographic or a message? Well, here's the connection to 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7 is like Niagara Falls in the flow of the Bible. I mean this. There are several great lakes of Revelation that flow into Second Samuel 7 from previous parts of the Bible. And those great lakes of Revelation pour into 2 Samuel 7, and then they flow to the rest of the Bible. They flow to the cradle, the cross, out from the empty tomb, and on to the crown on the head of Jesus, the Son of David, who is the King of Kings. What a sight. Second Samuel 7 is. It's the Niagara Falls of grace that captures all the redemptive streams coming before it and then shoots them out where they flow to the throne of God where Jesus the son of David reigns as king forevermore. That's Second Samuel 7. It's the story of the Bible in a chapter. Understand the promises in this chapter, and you'll see how the Bible fits together. It's like, not exactly, but it's like Romans 8, where God promises that nothing can separate us from His love, where we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. My role this morning is to be a tour guide along the banks of this Niagara of a text, And as we go along, I'm going to point out some great lakes that flow into this passage. I'm going to point out two, but I just want to talk about three of them. We can name these great lakes with one word or one hyphenated word. One great lake that pours into 2 Samuel 7 is a great lake called rest. The great lake called rest pours into 2 Samuel 7, and it carries us on to Christ who is the promised rest that we all need. There is no rest for anybody outside of Christ. Come unto me, he said, and I will give you what? Rest. And Hebrews says he is better than all the rest. Another great lake that pours into 2 Samuel 7 is a great lake of great name. God promised to a man named Abraham that kings would come through his line. God said, I will make your name great. Well, in 2 Samuel 7, God applies that covenant promise that He made with Abraham to David, and He uses the same words in this chapter, and He says, I will make your name great. Waters from the lake of great name surge into this chapter. What does that mean already? It means that God's loving plan to redeem the world gathered momentum with God's promise to Abraham. And then through Abraham, God widens his redemptive plan to all of Israel. And now in 2 Samuel 7, it narrows back to one man in Israel, David, who's also a king. Kings will come through you, Abraham. I will bless nations through you. And now we see in 2 Samuel 7 that at least initially David is that promised seed of Abraham, the king through whom God will bless the nations of the world. So 2 Samuel 7 is a staggering promise. Here God makes an undeserved promise with an undeserved man that will change an undeserving world world. Because in this promise with David, God provides our Savior and secures our salvation and grounds our assurance so that Christians for centuries can sing and say, his love, not mine, the resting place. We love him because he first loved us. Now, as your tour guide this morning, I've already pointed out two of the great lakes, rest and great name, but I just want to focus on three others that have particularly come in 2 Samuel 7, 11 to 17. We're going to read chapter 7, verses 1 to 17, but as we read, I want you now to look out for these three great lakes. You'll see the other two, but look for these three great lakes. Look for a lake called house, look for a lake called offspring, and look for a lake called seed. You ready? 2 Samuel 7, beginning at verse 1. This is God's word. Now, when David the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan the prophet said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David. Thus says the Lord, Will you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. And all the places where I've moved, with all the people of Israel, did I ever speak a word with any of the judges whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel? Did I ever say to anybody, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies." Moreover, the Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, which is a nice way of saying when you're pushing up daisies and you're dead and nobody thinks about you, when that happens, David, I will raise up from your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, that is your offspring's kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom then shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, In accordance with all this vision, Nathan the prophet spoke to David the king. This is the word of the Lord. Behold the beauty of a staggering promise that lasts forever. In the first 11 verses, you see two things. You see a desire denied and a divine desire asserted. And 1 to 7, David's desire is denied, and 7 and following, the divine desire is asserted. First, God reminds David of a divine desire that was over David's past, verses 8 to 9. I took you from the pasture to the palace, David. Then God reminds David of his divine desire over David's present, verses 9 to 11. I have given you rest. I've appointed my people a place. I am making your name great. And asserting then the divine desire over David's past and present, God is reminding David and us as readers that he alone is sovereign in salvation. That with the downbeat of his grace, God initiates every moment and movement in redemptive history. And he orchestrates and conducts every moment in between too. He orchestrates it all. Every galaxy, microbe and hill dances to a sovereign will. I don't need you, David. Would you build me a house? Come on, man. The whole universe and all its vastness is only fit for me to put my feet on it. Would you build me a house? And that goes for us too. We are only instruments. and God can make a melody with any instrument Why he can even make stones, praise him. He doesn't need us. God says, you want to build a house for me, David, how short-sighted you are, because you want to do something for me, here's how you're short-sighted, verse 11b, I'm about to do something for the world through you. So here you have, in this move, God denies David's desire, and he promises to do something better than David could have ever desired. That as a quick aside... You may find in the life of a congregation or in your life as a believer, God himself denying what seems to be a good desire. But this chapter shows us that God is still worthy of trust. That behind a frowning providence he shows a smiling face. That blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. But one day God is his interpreter and he will make it plain. What's the point? Aren't you glad that God denied David's desire so that one day he could give us his son? That's what happened. Well, in verses 11 to 17, we move from God's divine desire over David's past and present now to de- His divine desire asserted over David's future. This is now where we'll settle in in 11 to 17. And it all begins in the second half of verse 11. Did you see it? Look again. Look, look again. Verse 11, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Now, here's our first great lake of the section a lake of house. Just the night before, we read, David expresses a desire to Nathan the prophet, I want to build a house, particularly for the ark of God. In the preceding chapters, David has just brought in the ark into the city, 2 Samuel 6, and he wants to build a special place for the ark. But God denies David's desire, and now he's going to turn it on its head. And the reversal comes in a play of words. House is a word for Dynasty. So Queen Elizabeth, who recently passed, was of the house, the dynasty of Windsor. Well, here now, in a delightful turn of phrase, God says, you want to build me a house, a temple for me to dwell in? David, I'm going to build a household for you, a dynasty for the nations of the world to find refuge in. This is my promise to the world through you. So in this beautiful wordplay, house, household, David gives one of the most significant, God gets, gives David one of the most significant promises in the Bible that's at the heart of 2 Samuel 7. It's at the heart of the prophets in the Old Testament, it's at the heart of the entire Bible. It lays the groundwork for his own son to come. Now God says that this dynasty that I'm providing is going to last how long? Verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So this section of verses, it opens in verse 11 and verse 16 with God making a promise to David that he will give him a household and this dynasty God provides will be characterized with an eternal state and reign. I'm going to give you a dynasty. How long? An everlasting dynasty. So you could say this chapter is about three things to this point. A desire denied, 1 to 7. A divine desire asserted, 7 to 11. And now a dynasty provided forever, 11 to 17. Well, God makes this promise. I'm going to give you a dynasty forever. But now He's going to tell us how He's going to keep that promise. So now we're moving from the the great lake of house to another great lake. See if you can see what it is in verse 12. When your days are fulfilled, David, and you're, you're dead, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his, that is, your offspring's kingdom. So how will God keep this promise of an eternal dynasty? First, He promises that... David and his seed will bless the earth, his offspring. I will raise up offspring from your body. And what I did, and what what I did for you, I will keep doing for your offspring. What is that? I will establish the kingdom of your offspring forever as well. Now with that word offspring or seed, here's the great lake of revelation that pours in. How is this great lake of seed or offspring important? Well, let's go back Upstream to see where this great lake begins. Way back in Genesis, God promised Eve that He's going to reverse the curse and crush the head of the serpent. How? Through your seed, Eve. Through the seed of the woman. And as an aside, do you see this? That promise in Genesis 3.15, that God will save the world through a woman fulfilling one of her unique roles of giving birth and being a mother, dignifies and elevates the role of motherhood as a vocation second to none. Through the daughters of Eve fulfilling a primary part of their calling as a wife and mother, God is going to save the world. And it's a role He gives uniquely to women how beautiful, how important and centrally, savingly significant motherhood is to the plan of God, the power of motherhood. Don't underestimate this unique role God gives to women because through it, he's going to save the world. Well, that promise that he made to Eve, he gives to Abraham. He says the same thing. Now through your seed, Abraham, Genesis 12, I'm going to bless the nations of the earth. So the line of this curse reverser goes right through Abraham's offspring. It pooled in Genesis 3, it flows to Genesis 12, and now it's pouring into 2 Samuel 7. The Lord just told David, That he's now part of that promised offspring. That through the house of David, through his dynasty, the promise to bless the nations of the world are going to flow through David and through his offspring. That David himself is inheriting those promises that have been previously made. It began in Genesis 3.15. It's given to Abraham. Now it's pressed on to David and his household. And as the story of Samuel opens in the darkness of the days of Judges, A woman named Hannah sang of this very moment, before anybody else sees it in the Bible, she sings at the end of 1 Samuel 2, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. How? He will give strength to His King. We ain't got no King, but He will exalt the horn of His anointed Messiah. Hannah saw it coming before anybody else. Here's an undeserved promise to an undeserving sinner for an undeserving world, and God keeps it through this promise to David that his offspring will bless the earth. But then he makes a covenant with David that he will give him a son in particular. God explains what that son will do in verse 13. David, your son is going to do what you wanted to do, but I told you no. What is that? Verse 13, your son will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, David doesn't build an ark for the, for the temple of God. David doesn't do it, but we know in the story of the Bible who does. It's Solomon. Then verse 14 speaks of Solomon and all David's kingly descendants by extension as his son. I will be a father to him and he will be my son. That's to David's offspring after him. Now, we've got to stop for a moment to figure this out. We're not familiar with this language so much of referring to people as sons who are not your biological sons unless you dunk on them and you say, son, I own you. That's not what's going on here. This is language in the ancient Near East to capture the relationship between a god and his king. So in a polytheistic culture, a king is seen to be a son of the god. Now, it's usually the earthly king who wants to initiate and makes this, this, this declaration to the God of, I promise to you, O great Marduk, to be your faithful son and carry out your will on the earth. I am your son and you are my God, Marduk. The king then represents the God on the earth and is such as his son. But how different that is from David here. David doesn't choose God. God sovereignly chooses him. I will be your father and you will be my son. You are my king. You will be like a son who reflects my reign. Here is a dynasty provided. I will be his father and he will be my son. Thus, in keeping with all of the ancient Near Eastern customs, this comes with a significant twist. That is, as we just said, God is choosing David. And again, we see that God always takes the initiative in redemption. He always takes the first step in the dance and drama of redemption. And of course, this isn't only about David's offspring. It's about David too, because you can read in Psalm 89, which records all of the Old Testament history, you read these exact words reflecting this chapter, David will cry to me, you are my father, and I will say, make him my firstborn son, making him the highest of the kings of the earth. Do you see how this is working? And then in Psalm 2, you overhear God saying, what to his chosen king? The king is, you are my son. I've set you my son as my king. Well, the language of Psalm 2 is is a musical reprisal of the notes of 2 Samuel 7. Indeed, Psalm 2 is the musical soundtrack of 2 Samuel 7. God's chosen king will be his son to save the world. You see, then this sonship language is used as a royal image for God's king. Now, if you can't already tell, here is this sun language that's this final great lake. A great lake called sun is flowing into this chapter, but I want to save tracing that for a moment till the end. For now, just note That this sonship language is a way to describe David's descendants, his kingly sons, who will represent God on the earth. My kings are my sons who represent me. But a problem emerges. Because in Deuteronomy, where Moses promised a king, Moses said that king has to be a man of the book. It has to be a man of the word. Well... God's king was to follow the law, copy it by hand so that he would follow it. That's too why the Psalter, which largely tells the story of Israel through God's promise to David, opens with Psalm 1. Here's the connection. Psalm 1 sings of a man who delights in God's law, his Torah, followed by Psalm 2, where the king who delights in God's Torah is God's royal son. Psalm 1 and 2 are simply 2 Samuel 7 sung in an oratorial form. Now, we know the main downfall of this promise, at least initially. The main downfall of Saul, the, the thing that characterized his life, he did not obey God's word as king, and his spirit was ta- God's spirit was taken from him. So what of David? Will David be able to rise above that? Will David be above sin? And what about Solomon? Will they, as God's representatives, keep his word? Now, even if you know little of what comes next in the Bible story, you know the expression to err is human. Now, fat chance this is going to happen. And tragically for Solomon and David, tragically they both end up having a much, too much riz for their own good. So, so disobedience to God's word still threatens the covenant even in this chapter. How do we know? Because God acknowledges it in verse 14. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him. So at one level sin continues to be a problem to this promise. But then God makes another staggering promise. He says that I'm going to treat you David and your royal sons differently than what I treated how I treated Saul. I will discipline him verse 15 and now the bagpipes of amazing grace start to play. I will discipline him, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul. Do you hear now at least a faint, a faint echo of Romans 8 that nothing can separate us from the love of God, not even finally our sin? That is, God's promise here is all based on his grace. What a sinner David was! He already is. If you read 2 Samuel 2 1 to 6, he already has multiple wives and concubines, a clear violation of God's design for marriage. God didn't choose David finally because he's good, but because God is gracious. And that's your story too, isn't it? God didn't love you because you were a deal he couldn't pass up. He didn't love you because you're good. He loved you because he is gracious. I imagine some of us have sinned in surprising ways of late. Not to mention how messed up your past might be jacked up. But do you see, you can never then be saved by your works. Indeed, your only hope is to be saved from your works, present or past. George Whitfield was a British evangelist, use of God in the 1700s, to bring what's called a great awakening to America. One of his good friends was Ben Franklin who often urged Franklin. Whitfield often, he recorded some of his journals, and he, he, Whitfield often urged Franklin to trust Christ. And Franklin once wrote in his own journals, Whitfield used indeed to pray for my conversion, Franklin recalled, but he never had the satisfaction of hearing his prayers answered. Well, Whitfield preached his final sermon in September of 1770, and he preached out on top of a large barrel outside. And he spoke of the inability of works to merit forgiveness. One listener later recalled how Whitfield, in the last sermon he ever preached, suddenly cried out in a tone of thunder, Works! Works! A man get to heaven by works? I would as soon think of climbing to the moon on a rope of sand as getting to heaven by works. Friends, trying to self-justify your life is like climbing to the moon on a rope of sand. Your only hope is to be saved from your works by, verse 15, my steadfast love. Our salvation and our sanctification are all of grace. Your only hope was David's only hope. So you should sing marvelous, infinite, matchless grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured. There where the blood of lamb was spilt and every true Christian says grace, grace, marvelous grace. This is God's staggering promise of a dynasty provided to an undeserving man based on his steadfast love alone. But don't mistake it. If you sin, I will come for you. How severely God disciplined David. The consequences of his sin affected his family, especially his boys. And oh, how God disciplined Solomon. So my grace doesn't mean I will leave you in your sin, but I'm going to come after you in your sin. I'm not going to leave sin Dad. the last word in your life, and when I come after you, it will feel like a rod and the lashes of a whip, David, and all of your sons. What does that mean? It means on one hand, if you're here this morning and you're hurting from your sin, shamed from its consequences, that's because God loves you too much to leave you where you are. The Lord loves those whom he disciplines. Be sure your sin will find you out. So the writer of Hebrews reflecting on Proverbs and in part 2 Samuel 7 says, don't ever grow weary of the Lord's correction. He inflicts pain not to kill you, but to grow fruit in you. So submit brother or sister to his painful correction. Accept it whatever the cost because Jesus is worth it. Realize. How much he must love you to come after you so hard. He will let nothing tear you from his arms, not even your sin. Oh, love that will not let me go. I will discipline him severely to bring him home again. Or maybe on the other hand, you're experiencing the effects of someone's sin in your life. Well, well then, Their sin is not sovereign over your life either. However deeply, you have been cut and devastated, and I don't want to minimize the nuclear fallout of sin going off in a life or a family. But David's story shows that neither your sin nor someone's sin against you has the last word. It's not a determining word. It's hard to imagine, think of this, in what ways David did not sin against Bathsheba and her husband. And while the Bible doesn't minimize the devastation of David's egregious sin in this moment, neither does it minimize God's grace to Bathsheba. Grace to Bathsheba? Are you kidding me, bro? Are you crazy? Yes, grace. Grace makes a place for Bathsheba. Through her, the Savior of the world comes. She's one of the only women mentioned in the line of Christ which tells you how the Lord loved Bathsheba. David's awful sin was not the end of her life, but a fresh moment of God's love to surround her and give her a great place and the story of redemption. So whether you're in sin this morning, being chastised or about to be, or experiencing fallout from someone's sin, cling to this promise In Christ, through David, I mean great David's greater son, because here God promised, whatever happens, my steadfast love I will not take from you. My grace is greater than your sin. For when hell worked its foulest at the cross, God worked his greatest in your soul forever. And that brings us to the final consideration of this dynasty provided. He promises an offspring. He promises the seed. Well, well, How do I know he's going to keep this promise forever? Forever? And what does this have to do with me? How does this land with me? I'm going to work tomorrow. What does this do with me? Well, when God said to David, I'm going to establish your king forever, I think you have three options. Option number one, it could be just hyperbole. It's exaggerated language used at every coronation, but we all know it won't happen. Oh, king, live forever. It could be royal hyperbole. It could mean, secondly, that David will never lack a king on the throne, an endless perpetuity, uh, endless succession, one after the other, after the other, after the other, world without end, or in the words of Randy Travis, forever and ever, amen. But ask, but ask Henry VIII how hard it is just to have one heir, let alone endless ones. So the promise of a never-ending kingdom, it could be hyperbole. It could be the promise of an endless succession. Unlikely. But as David's dynasty, as great as it was, lasting some 400 years, the dynasty is already on its way out two generations after David. David had worked so hard in 2 Samuel 1-6 to to unite this divided kingdom. He worked so hard, but David's grandson will split the kingdom in two. And about two and a half centuries go by, and the northern kingdom of Israel never really does get a dynasty going. Kings come and go. The northern kingdom finally falls, carried off by this Assyrian nation in 722. And as for the southern kingdom, where David's line remains, well, they do last another century and a half until they fall at the great hand of Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And by 587 or so, though David still has descendants, the Davidic dynasty is done. The house of David is no more. So much for the promise of forever, so long, David, and here comes goodbye. That's the very viewpoint, again, of Psalm 89. Psalm 89, strategically placed where it is in the book of Psalms, details the darkest days of the exile, and Psalm 89 reflects on the promise made in 2 Samuel 7. And you know what it's saying? What about those promises now, God? The psalmist actually has the chutzpah to ask God, we have no king. Did you lie to us? Where is your steadfast love you promised to David? Where are you, God? Did you lie? It's pretty dark in here. What that means is they didn't look at God's promises hyperbole, and if they thought it meant an endless succession of kings one after the other, now they knew that's not true. They're in the darkness of exile. Have you forgotten your steadfast love? Love and your promises. And you and I, loved ones, whatever is in our lives today, we ask the same thing. I don't feel steadfast love in my life. Thank you very much. Well, the answer comes with the third option of God establishing his king forever. If it's not hyperbole in endless succession, then what's the option? Here's the option, and I want to show it to you as we come to the end. Here's the option, that one day David would have a son whom God would refer to as his son, and that son himself would live forever. Now, do you know of any son of David also called a son of God who lives forever? You see how precious this promise is? Now go back to the great lake of promise. Go back. See how that great lake pours in. You ready? We're almost home. Hang on. How is that great lake of sun a solution? Well, David and Solomon and all those coming after him are not the final son of whom God spoke when he said, I will give you a son and I will be a father and he will be my son. Instead, what we're seeing then is David's life is functioning like a billboard acting as an advertisement for the final son. But he's not the final son. Solomon too. And this longing for this kind of son, follow the headwaters, goes all the way back to Eden. Dr. Luke, leave it to a doctor to want to know somebody's family history. Fill out the form. Where are you from? What's your disease? Who had this? Dr. Luke traces Jesus' genealogy all the way back to the Adam in the garden. And Dr. Luke makes a surprising discovery in Luke 3.38. He calls Adam a son of God. The first son in the Bible is Adam, Luke 3.38. How? God made him. He placed him in the garden as his vice regent. Adam was to represent God's rule and reign in the world. Adam then was God's first son revealed in the Bible. No, 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 no. no. We think, not by DNA or Mormon-like copulation. This isn't biology. Adam was, not a, was a son in the sense he's to represent God, function as God, as God's son. Adam was to obey God and keep his word. Of course, as Adam as God's son, did not obey God. The next time we see the, the son language applied is in the book of Exodus, when God's people are in slavery under the Pharaoh of Egypt, and Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, The Lord says, Exodus 4, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go. What's happening? God is transferring the language of son from Adam to Israel. Just as Adam was God's son who was to obey his word and image him fully in the world, now God chooses Israel to be his son who would represent God's rule to the world. So the role passed from Adam through Abraham to Israel. But Israel fares no better than Adam. Israel failed to embody him. Uh, and indeed, the context of Samuel opens in the days of the judges. When there is no king in Israel and everybody's doing what's right in his own eyes, God's son Israel, like Abraham before, is now part of the problem. Every son God chooses is the problem. So all those hopes now of a promised son in Adam and Israel, all those currents now from that great lake of sun, now come into 2 Samuel 7 where God once more speaks of a son. Adam's son gave way to Israel. God's Israel now is giving way to David as God's son. This royal language of son now is applied to David. So what does it mean? It means that God now is going to concentrate all his promises for a royal son in and through David. Adam was God's son. Israel was God's son. But now David is God's son. And every king that comes in David's line, God would call that king in David's line, my son. You are to represent me. The problem is that not one of God's sons ever did. Until one day, 400 or centuries later, after the Davidic crown had rolled into the dust, a tax collector named Matthew, who liked to keep accounts, begins writing about somebody named Jesus Christ, and he opens with, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. And at his baptism, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the heavens open, the spirit descends like a dove to anoint Jesus. And when all at once a voice from heaven is heard, behold, my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now you tell me, of which of God's son could he ever say that? He couldn't say it of Adam. He couldn't say it of Israel. He couldn't even say it of David or any of his kin. But here the New Testament story opens with a voice from heaven declaring "From everybody, this is my beloved son. And this son is none other than the son of David, which means we should ask, can this Jesus be that promised son? So at his birth, echoing the words of Nathan's words in 2 Samuel 7, it was said of Jesus, he will be called great. Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David and his kingdom will never end. Do you hear that? A son whose name will be great, whose kingdom will be never end. That's all the Great Lakes language of son. All the spectacular imagery given to David is now applied to Jesus who is the son of God. So how, how then would David, this covenant be fulfilled? It would finally be fulfilled through a pleasing son, who always did the things that pleased his Father, who would one day rise from the dead to live forever. Every sunset brings the promise of a new dawn. David is the promised sunset. Jesus, the son of David, is the sunrise. David is the sunset, the sign of a promise made. Jesus is the sunrise, the sign of a promise kept. And now just as King David, God's son, was a gift of divine love to an undeserving nation of Israel, how much greater is the gift of Jesus Christ, God's son, to an undeserving world? Jesus did not die to make God love us. He died as a sign of how much God loves us already. So when you hear John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that's God keeping his promise through David so that you would never perish. Here is God's undeserving promise to an undeserving man to save an undeserving world through the gift of Jesus, the son of David. And you sit back and you say, do you feel the world is broken? Do you feel the shadows deepen? Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? The Lion of Judah who conquered the grave. He is David's root and the Lamb who rose to save. Is he worthy? He is. Do you know how much God the Father loves you in Christ? Do you know how much he loves you? Behold the beauty of Jesus. Promise made. Promise kept. Let's pray. Father. Finish. These words and your work in our heart. May we know the love of Christ that passes understanding. Amen.